Welcome to Music History Monday for March 22, 2021. I'm Bob Greenberg, and the title for today's podcast is Stephen Sondheim, The Making of a Theatrical Life, Part 1. If you haven't already, please consider joining me on my subscription site at patreon.com slash robertgreenbergmusic, where I blog, vlog, podcast, pontificate, review, and bloviate four to six times a week. We mark the birth on March 22, 1930, 91 years ago today, of the composer and lyricist Stephen Sondheim. Alive and we trust well, living in his brownstone townhouse in Manhattan's Turtle Bay neighborhood on the east side of Midtown, also the home of the Chrysler Building and the United Nations, we can only hope that Maestro Sondheim is spending the day doing what he does best, writing a song. What a wonderful coincidence. For two weeks in a row, I get to write about one of my favorite subjects, the American musical theater. Last week, it was the team of Alan J. Lerner and Frederick Lowe and their masterwork, My Fair Lady. In today's Music History Monday and tomorrow's Dr. Bob Prescribes, I get to write about Stephen Sondheim. What a pleasure. An upfront statement. Stephen Joshua Sondheim has lived a long, complex, incredibly productive, and well-documented life. To attempt to tell his entire story in one or two 2,500-word blogs slash podcasts can only trivialize his story and his work. So instead, today's Music History Monday and tomorrow's Dr. Bob Prescribes posts will tell the painful story of his early life and explore the mentorships and experiences that shaped his education and early career. A proper examination of the man and his stage work demands, at very least, a 24-lecture Great Courses survey, which would run approximately 120,000 words. A one-man operation. In last week's Music History Monday post, we observed that the great Broadway songwriting teams, Lerner and Lowe, Gershwin and Gershwin, Rogers and Hart, Rogers and Hammerstein, and so forth, are spoken of so often that their names merge into a single name, Rogers and Hammerstein. But as we noted last week, a singularity these teams are not. They consist of two often very different people working together in one of the most intense collaborations imaginable. The operative words in that previous paragraph are teams and collaborations. Writing good lyrics and good music are two very difficult and very different artistic challenges. To become accomplished at either one usually requires half a lifetime of hard work. To be both successful as a lyricist and a composer is another thing altogether. Members of this vaunted club are few indeed and include Cole Porter, 1891 to 1964, Meredith Wilson, 1902 to 1984, who wrote The Music Man, Frank Lesser, 1910 to 1969, who wrote the lyrics and music for Guys and Dolls, 
and how to succeed in business without really trying. Lin-Manuel Miranda, born 1980, who created Hamilton, and Anais Mitchell, born 1981, who created Hadestown. But with all due respect to the wonderful Cole Porter, who wrote the songs for 24 musicals, we must recognize that qualitatively, if not quantitatively, the greatest one-person lyrics and music act in the history of Broadway is Stephen Sondheim, hands and feet down. Early in his career, Sondheim did indeed work solely as a lyricist. He wrote the lyrics to West Side Story, 1957, music by Leonard Bernstein, Gypsy, 1959, music by Julie Stein, and Do I Hear a Waltz, 1965, music by Richard Rodgers. But that was it, and Sondheim provided both the lyrics and the music for his remaining 16 shows. Those shows include A Funny Thing Happened on the Way to the Forum, 1962, Anyone Can Whistle, 1964, Evening Primrose, 1966, Company, 1970, Follies, 1971, A Little Night Music, 1973, Pacific Overtures, 1976, Sweeney Todd, 1979, Merrily We Roll Along, 1981, Sunday in the Park with George, 1984, Into the Woods, 1987, Assassins, 1990, Passion, 1994, and Roadshow, 2008. This is a stunning body of work, to which we must also add songs for such movies as The 7% Solution, Reds, Dick Tracy, and The Birdcage. Along the way, Sondheim has picked up, among other awards and honors, an Academy Award, eight Grammy Awards, nine Tony Awards, more than any other composer in the history of the stage, eight Drama Desk Awards, five Laurence Olivier Awards, a Pulitzer Prize for Sunday in the Park with George, Kennedy Center Honors, and a Presidential Medal of Freedom. These accolades are all well-deserved. At a time of relative artistic blight for the American musical theater, the 1970s and 1980s, a period dominated by revivals, reviews, and escapist, special effects-laden, imported mega-shows by the likes of Andrew Lloyd Webber, Sondheim's shows virtually reinvented the American musical theater. His shows go far beyond the themes of the typical musical by addressing, according to the critic Bruce Webber, quote, the darker, more harrowing elements of the human experience, unquote. Sondheim achieves his dramatic ends with words and music of exceptional complexity and sophistication. That Sondheim attained the level of literary and compositional virtuosity that he has had much to do with his training. He studied with and was mentored by two of the great masters of the 20th century, the lyricist Oscar Hammerstein II, 1895 to 1960, and the composer Milton Babbitt, 1916 to 2011. A difficult childhood. On the surface, 
Sondheim's childhood looks a lot like that of Alan J. Lerner. They both started their lives in Manhattan in well-to-do Jewish families in which the family money was derived from designing and manufacturing women's clothing. Lerner grew up in a 17-room apartment on Park Avenue. Sondheim spent the first 10 years of his childhood living in the San Remo on Central Park West between 74th and 75th Streets, then as now, one of the most exclusive addresses on the West Side. But that is where the resemblance between Lerner and Sondheim ends. Sondheim was a neglected only child, raised by nannies and servants. His parents were workaholics. His mother, Etta Janet Fox Sondheim, nicknamed Foxy, 1897-1992, designed dresses. His father, Herbert Sondheim, 1895-1966, manufactured them. When he was 10, Sondheim's father left his mother for a younger, prettier, taller woman, a natural blonde and a shiksa, no less, and Stephen's world imploded. The cliché applies, hell hath no fury like a woman scorned. Meryl Sechrist, Stephen Sondheim's principal biographer, Vintage Books, 2011, describes Sondheim's mother Foxy this way, quote, here was someone with whom you immediately came to grips for good or ill, a sprawling personality who escaped ordinary definitions, the kind of person who came crashing into your life and left some kind of mark, usually a scar, before she crashed out again." Unquote. Foxy Sondheim, who had always been a little crazy, went a lot crazier when her husband left her and subsequently married and had two children with the object of his desire, a woman named Alicia Babet. Writes Merrill Sechrist, quote, outraged, vindictive, and frustrated, with no target for those feelings but her 10-year-old son, unquote, Foxy Sondheim's principal domestic focus became poisoning his mind against his father. A college friend of Foxy's believed that she, quote, blamed her son for the failure of her marriage and succeeded in making him believe it, unquote. Foxy Sondheim became an emotionally and sexually abusive mother. I would tell you that it all makes for painful reading. Sondheim recalled, quote, when my father left her, she substituted me for him and she used me the way she had used him to come on to and berate, beat up on, you see. What she did for years was treat me like dirt, but come on to me sexually at the same time." Unquote. The damage that all of this did to Stephen remains incalculable, and he was entirely estranged from his mother during the final 20 years of her life. In an interview with Frank Rich, decades later, Sondheim described the origins of his introverted, solitary nature this way, quote, the outsider feeling, somebody who people want to both kiss and kill, occurred quite early in my life, unquote. We don't have to wonder why. Sondheim's extraordinary insights 
into the human condition, his empathy, his implicit understanding of the darker, more harrowing elements of the human experience came at a high price. But come they did, and his childhood experiences contributed mightily to the depth of his artistry as an adult. Bucks County, Pennsylvania. Not long after her husband moved out, and we suspect, attempting to rebound emotionally, Foxy Sondheim decided to redecorate the apartment at the San Remo. She hired an interior decorator named Dorothy Hammerstein, who had just moved to New York from Hollywood with her husband, the lyricist and producer Oscar Hammerstein II. The Hammersteins had a son named Jamie, he was called Jimmy back then, who was a year younger than Stephen. The boys discovered they had a mutual passion for board games, Monopoly in particular, and became fast friends. In early 1942, the Hammersteins bought a property called Highland Farm in Bucks County, Pennsylvania, outside of Doylestown, about 25 miles north of Philadelphia. Now please, this is not the first time that Doylestown, Pennsylvania, has come up in a Music History Monday post. On June 29, 2020, in a post entitled, I Left My Heart in Doylestown, Pennsylvania, we observed that the heart of the Polish pianist and patriot Ignacy Paderewski, 1860-1941, today resides in a shrine dedicated to Paderewski's patron saint, Our Lady of Chestachawa, in Doylestown, Pennsylvania. In June of 1942, the 12-year-old Sondheim was invited to visit the Hammerstein's farm. Jimmy Hammerstein recalled that, quote, he, Stephen, was supposed to go off to camp for the summer, but he had such a good time that he said, do I have to go to camp? And his mother canceled it, and he came to us instead. He was the boy who came to dinner, unquote. Well, truth be told, he was much more than just that. He was the boy who found a surrogate family in the Hammersteins and a second father in Oscar Hammerstein. Just months after that summer visit, Herbert Sondheim settled financially with his now ex-wife, and Foxy used the money to buy her own farm in Doylestown, about four miles from the Hammersteins. Perversely, it was the greatest gift she could have given her son. A mutual friend named Susan Blanchard recalled, quote, I heard stories about Foxy reducing Stevie to tears. He'd be out of his mind with rage and pain. He would get on his bicycle and rush to the Hammersteins, and they would comfort him, unquote. In an interview conducted in 2005, Sondheim remembered, quote, I went to live in Pennsylvania with my mother. She cultivated the Hammersteins, and so by the time I went to George School, when I was 13, I was already interested in imitating Oscar. He was a surrogate father. I liked my father a lot. He was a swell fellow, but I didn't see him very often because my mother was bitter about him and did everything she could to prevent me from seeing him. He remarried, and I used to have to sneak off to see them. I didn't know it, 
but my mother was lying to me about how often I could see him. It was very unpleasant. So Oscar was a surrogate father during all those many days and weeks and months when I didn't see my own father." Unquote. By the time he was 15, Sondheim was writing short stories and had become a decent enough pianist to play through large chunks of George Gershwin's Rhapsody in Blue and An American in Paris. He was at that time attending the George School, a private college preparatory Quaker or Friends School in Newton, about 10 miles south of Doylestown. It was while attending the George School that Sondheim wrote his first musical, entitled By George. Sondheim told the story of the musical in that 2005 interview. Quote, By George was all about local campus activities. I was 15. I thought it was so terrific. I was sure that Rogers and Hammerstein, who were producers as well as writers, would want to produce it immediately, and I would be the youngest songwriter on Broadway. I asked him, meaning Oscar Hammerstein, if he would read it, and he said, sure. And so he called me the next day, and I went over, and I said, now, you know, I want you to really treat this like a professional, as if you didn't know me, as if it just crossed your desk. And he said, all right, in that case, it's the worst thing that ever crossed my desk. And I was shocked. And he knew how disappointed I was, to put it mildly. He said, now, I didn't say it wasn't talented, but if you want to go through it, I'll tell you what's wrong with it. And he started right from the first stage direction, and he treated me like an adult. He treated me as if I were a professional. And by the end of the afternoon, I was on my way to being a professional. It was a long afternoon. And you know, at that age, you're a sponge. You just absorb everything. And he gave me the distillation of 30 years of experience. He set up a course for me, so to speak. He said, if you want to learn to write musicals, why don't you take a good play, one that you like, and make it into a musical? And then, after you've done that, then take a play that you like but you think is flawed and see if you can improve it and turn it into a musical. Then take a story, not one that you've written, but that is not in the dramatic form, like a novel or something like that, and make it into a musical. And then make up your own story and make it into a musical. He said, by the time you get all those four done, you'll know something. And that's exactly what I did." Unquote. It took Sondheim years to write those four musicals, none of which has ever been produced, but learn his lessons he did. Among the lessons he learned from Hammerstein were, one, every word must be chosen with meticulous care. Two, a lyric is not the same as poetry, and a lyricist must beware of trying to say too much, lest there be no interpretive space left for the music. Three, on these same lines, a degree of repetition that would not be useful in a poem is utterly necessary for a lyric, 
The example cited is Hammerstein's own lyric to Oh, What a Beautiful Morning from Oklahoma. Oh, what a beautiful morning. Oh, what a beautiful day. A repetition that looks drab on the printed page, but is magic when set to Richard Rodgers' music. Four, the lyrics of a song must be comfortably singable, meaning that the progression of vowels and consonants must fall easily and naturally from the mouth. Five, songs should never be merely inserted at arbitrary intervals, but seamlessly intertwined in that everything, dialogue, melody, and lyrics, worked to further the plot and give it dramatic force. Looking back at that long afternoon with Hammerstein, Sondheim said, quote, in that afternoon, I learned more about songwriting and the musical theater than most people learn in a lifetime, unquote. We can only shake our heads. What a spectacular, serendipitous piece of luck it was that Stephen Sondheim, an anguished, angry, ambivalent, lonely child, should have encountered and forged a relationship with Oscar Hammerstein II when he did. Hammerstein not only gave the boy the love and support he so desperately needed, but as a role model and mentor, Hammerstein gave Sondheim the means to express his anguish and ambivalence and thus maintain his sanity. What an inestimable gift, not just for Sondheim, but to posterity but that we all had an Oscar Hammerstein in our lives. When we return tomorrow in Dr. Bob Prescribes, it will be with Sondheim's musical education and mentorship at the hands of Milton Babbitt. But before we end, a postscript. You want to talk about fame? Let's talk fame. Okay, first there's fame in small letters being known and celebrated by the cognoscenti of a particular field, like the fame of Alan J. Lerner and Fritz Lowe among the fans of musical theater. Then there's fame, writ large in capital letters, when for whatever reason, good, bad, or ridiculous, regarding ridiculous, think the Kardashian clan, someone's fame crosses over into popular culture. There are many barometers by which we can measure fame in caps, one of them being Matt Groening's The Simpsons. Yes, I think you know where this is going. The 14th episode of season 18 of The Simpsons first aired on March 4, 2007. Entitled Yokel Chords, as opposed to Vocal Chords, the episode features Stephen Sondheim as himself. That is fame. Thank you. To sample and download one or all of my many courses on subjects musical produced by The Great Courses slash The Teaching Company, please visit my website at robertgreenbergmusic.com.